If you had been in the church last Sunday, <coughs> we saw Jesus, the mighty Savior and the Good Shepherd. We saw from Isaiah chapter 40. You know, he tends his flock like a shepherd and he carries them close to his heart. Jesus, the mighty Savior and the Good Shepherd. And then as we meditated on that passage, uh, we said that how do we know that uh, Jesus is our Good Shepherd? How do we know that Jesus is our Good Shepherd? And I'm sure we all agreed on that, that when our love for the world decreases and our love for God increases, then we know that Jesus is our Good Shepherd. So I want to continue with that particular theme. And towards the end, I also drew your attention to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Uh, if you have, if you were taking notes, you will see that the last thing we saw was 1 John chapter 2, 15 to 17. And today we'll expound on that particular verse, 1 John chapter 2, 15 to 17. And this particular text says, do not love the world. If Jesus is our mighty savior, if Jesus is our good shepherd, then the consequence of that, automatically what flows out of it is we will not be lovers of the world. Shall we all rise to our feet for the scripture uh, reading uh, taken from 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 to 17. 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives for ever. This is God's word. Kindly be seated. <coughs> if you see the text, you know, it starts with a command. Do not love the world or anything in the world. It's a negative command. Do not love the world or anything in the world. But the rest of the text is an argument or an incentive as to why we should not love the world. You know, John the Apostle, the beloved disciple, is explaining why we should not love the world or anything in the world. The first incentive uh, John gives us is that if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. If anyone, if anyone, in other words, all of us, anyone. If anyone loves the world, 
love for the Father is not in them. The reason we should not love the world is we cannot love the world and love God. We cannot do it. We cannot love the world and love God. The reason being love for the world pushes out love for God and love for God pushes out love for the world. Love for the world pushes out love for God and love for God pushes out love for the world. The second incentive John gives us is that the world and its desires, they pass away. They just pass away. If we love the world, the world will pass away and it will take us also with it. We will also just pass away with the world. <coughs> what John is saying is, if we love the world, we will perish with the world. If we love the world, we will perish with the world. That's the second incentive he gives in this passage. And the third incentive John gives is that whoever does the will of God lives forever. Whoever does the will of God lives forever. If we love God instead of the world, we will live with God forever. So these are the three incentives he gives in this text for that negative command, do not love the world or anything in the world. <coughs> you know, before we move further, uh, it's important that we recognize there are two common misinterpretations of this passage, uh, the way we understand. The first is called, these are misinterpretations, and sometimes we too tend to follow that misinterpretation. The first is called as the ascetic interpretation. You know, according to this interpretation, do not love the world means Christians literally have to go out of the world and isolate themselves. It's a wrong interpretation. It's a misinterpretation. Christians have to go out of the world and isolate themselves. You know, this is this kind of wrong interpretation or misinterpretation led to the establishment of monastery. You all are aware. Monks, they go to the mountains. They want to be cut off from the society because it all came out of this misinterpretation. Uh, if anyone loves the world. And this is the, this kind of misinterpretation which gave rise to uh, religious people and lay people. You know, people who went and stayed there, they were considered as religious, others are considered as lay, or in other words, you know, uh, they were religious, others are secular. All this came about because of this kind of misinterpretation of this particular passage. The second in the misinterpretation is what we call as incomplete interpretation. Incomplete. You know, there are two ways <coughs> they do this uh, incomplete interpretation. 
the basic reason why they do this uh, misinterpretation is they define worldliness as they think, not as John thinks. You know, I can think worldliness the way I want, but it doesn't mean it is scriptural. So it is important for us to understand what worldliness means from the scripture, not what I think. So since it is they defined worldliness, so there are two ways. So the one way they said is, you know, worldliness means going to cinemas, going to dance parties. I'm sure you can identify this kind of interpretation. You know, drinking, gambling, smoking, this all worldliness. So the moment, if I don't go to cinema, if I don't attend a dance party, if I don't drink, I don't smoke, you know, I'm not a worldly person. The worldliness is not in me. I'm a holy person. You see, I have given a definition of worldliness and I can say that I am a holy person because I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't do this, I don't do this. This is a misinterpretation of this passage. It is incomplete interpretation. It's, I'm not saying that you know, we should drink, smoke, gamble. I'm not saying that. I said it's an incomplete interpretation of this passage. Now, there are two strands in that incomplete interpretation. One is what I said, no smoking, no gambling, and all that. The second strand of thinking is, you know, if you are a Christian, you should not take part in politics or any social activities. So, because politics and social activities, these are all worldly activities. You do, if you involve yourself, uh, if you don't involve yourself, then it's fine. You're a holy person. So these are wrong interpretations, or we, could, we call it as incomplete interpretation. Now do you realize why it is important for us to understand what John means by worldliness. If we don't understand that particular aspect, we will have our own definition of worldliness. So it is all the more important for all of us to understand what the Apostle John means by do not love the world or anything in the world. It's, it's, it's very important. Do not love the world or anything in the world. So we'll try to meditate on this passage by asking three questions. The first question is, what is meant by the world? The second is, uh, what is in the world? Because John the Apostle says, do not love the world or anything in the world. So what is in the world? The third is, how do we do the will of God? Because John the Apostle gives that incentive, whoever does the will of God lives for ever. So it is important for us to understand how do we do the will of God. So we go one by one, what is meant by the world. I hope we all agree that John is not referring here to creation. You know, he is not thinking about the mountains, 
and the valleys and the rivers and the sun and the moon and the stars. I'm sure we all agree when he says do not love the world. So at least we all agree he is not referring to creation as such. In no way he is referring to the physical world as such. I hope we have no problem with that. Neither does it mean family relationships. Why I say family relationships? Because there are people who misinterpreted verse like this and very often they said um, marriage is sinful. You will get to hear, I'm sure you would have heard also, not that I have to tell. So people come with this wrong kind of mis uh, kind of interpretation. Marriage is sinful. So this verse is not talking about family relationships as such. This, wor this word, world, uh, does not mean engaging in a business or working in an IT company or working in a bank. All worldly activities. This verse, um, I hope we all agree, does not refer to that. Because all these are essential to life. It does not mean government and authorities. Because in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, we have been commanded to pray for kings and all those in authority. We have been commanded to pray for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So all this do not come under world or the worldliness. So what is meant by the world? Do not love the world. So what is meant by the world? If you read the scripture as such, the whole of scripture, you know, the world refers to our worldview. It refers, do not love the world means, it refers to our worldview. Uh, it refers to the way we organize our mind. Uh, let me give an uh, example. And uh, since most of you are in the computer field, I think this will uh, help you to understand what I mean by worldview. What is the difference between an Apple and an Android system? What is the difference? The difference is in the operating system. That's the difference. Apple and when you talk about Android, so you talk about the difference in the operating system. Now you know that these gadgets are run by an operating system. Each one of us have an operating system in our mind. Each one of us. So when we say do not love the world, it's talking about the operating system we have in our mind. And it is very important we understand this because we, we make 
our operating system according to our convenience. That is why as children of God, when John says, do not love the world, he's trying to say, replace your operating system. Because we have an operating system. Since it's in my control, I try to change it according to my convenience. I go to my workplace, there is a demand, they, have been, they ask me to cheat, I don't find it a problem because I change my operating system. You know, this is business I have to do, I have to survive. It has got nothing to do with God. You, you realize what I'm talking? When John says, do not love the world, he is saying, do not fall in love with your sinful operating system. That's what John says, do not love the world. When we look at things, we look at things with our operating system. And we constantly adjust, modify. Though we are all saved people, it's important we understand and renew this operating system. And that's why John says, you know, do not love the world. You know, uh, I'm not going to explain, expound more on this, but I'll just draw your attention to one particular verse uh, which will teach you about this. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Is good? pleasing and perfect will. Now, if you are talking about your operating system, we are talking about that. Do not conform to the pattern of this world because we have a tendency to change our operating system according to the demands outside. According to the pressure we face in the world, we do that. We do that. And we don't think there's anything wrong. So that's what he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is what John means by do not love the world. Do not love the world. Now, he didn't say we, if it's do not love the world and anything in the world, anything. So what is in the world? that he's talking about. So what is in the world? That's what we need to find. You know, because he has talked about our operating system, our worldview. Now we need to find out what is in the world because we are not supposed to love anything in the world. In verse 16 he says, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. <clears throat> now, the moment we see the word lust, you know, we immediately associate with, you know, something dirty. You know, that's the understanding. Uh, lust is not a dirty word. Uh, lust, because our understanding is limited. 
but just because our understanding is limited, it doesn't mean the scripture is talking about that. Lust here basically means an inordinate desire or affection. Your strong desire or affection is called as lust. It's you know immediately we get into the you know sexuality impurity when we see the word lust, but here he's talking about a strong desire and inordinate desire. The desire is so strong, we are controlled by the desire. You know that's what is it's meant by the word lust. You know the desires may be perfectly legitimate perfectly legitimate, but when it becomes an inordinate desire, we call it as, the Bible terms it as lust. Whenever our we are controlled and governed, I should have this. I should have this. You know, have you not faced situations like this? Somehow I should buy this. Somehow I should have this. So that's what's known as uh, lust. Now, if you see that verse, uh, for everything in the world, uh, no, it's, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Okay, now, for a second, you don't read that, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, don't read that. For everything in the world comes not from the Father, but from the world. For everything in the world comes not from the Father, but from the world. For our benefit, you know, John explains that by saying that what is in the world? In the world you have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He has defined it. So we don't have to struggle with that. So what is the lust of the flesh? John is talking about the kind of person who lives only for sensual gratification, which is important for him. That includes the kind of person who lives only to eat. It's a very legitimate desire, but when it becomes an inordinate desire, it's known as the lust of the flesh. You know, all through 24-7, he's only thinking about what shall I eat. You know, he has just finished his breakfast. My wife says, you're thinking about lunch. So it's, it's that. You, you see, his entire focus is what I'm going to eat next. He's a specialist when it comes to food and drink. He can give you all kind of explanations and everything, all the time thinking about food. Now, the hunger instinct is perfectly legitimate. It's perfectly legitimate, hunger. We, you know, we should eat. But we have to eat in order to live. But if we live to eat, we are guilty of the lust of the flesh. That's what is meant by the lust of the flesh. Uh, I can go from one area to another area. This applies to sex and all the desires that we have. I can go one by one. So it's enough, the lust of the flesh. The next is the lust of the eyes. The lust of the f eyes is basically the kind of person, you know, who lives according to false values. You know, everything he judges by mere appearance. It's false. 
So that is the lust of the eyes. Outward show. Your entire decision comes with what you see with your eyes. And the best thing is, you know, Jesus explained this lust of the eyes. Uh, in Matthew chapter 5, 28, he said, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Um, take that woman from that passage, and you could put anything. Anything, any visual image that corrupts your imagination is the lust of the eyes. This particular sin corrupts our imaginations. It's quite serious. You know, when you read the temptations of Jesus, this is powerful temptation. You know, devil, is, devil knows our weaknesses very well. And uh, if you read in Matthew chapter 4, towards the end, you know, the devil will take him, uh, will take Jesus, make him stand on the top of the mountain and show the entire world. And he says, if you worship me, I'll give this entire world to you. What was devil trying to do? Devil was trying to capture Jesus imaginations. He's showing him. He could show the entire world and he had the authority. He says, you just worship. You don't have to go to the cross. I will give you this. This is a very, very serious issue in our Christian lives which we often f ignore or overlook. What we see with our eyes I'm not saying we should close our eyes and walk. I'm not saying that. But to what extent our visuals are impacting our imaginations, our mind, is very important. If you want to love the Lord with all our heart, then we need to take care of this, the lust of the eyes. You know, people live only for their personal appearance. You know, they spend so much of time, you know, in just seeing, you know, it's all about their personal appearance and what kind of impression they make. This all comes under the lust of the eyes. We have to be very careful. Lust of the eyes. What kind of images are we consuming through our eyes? It's a gateway to our mind. If we want to have a renewed mind, our eyes play an important part. What kind of videos we see? What's, what comes to your mind when you're doing nothing? What is the image that you have seen that comes to your mind? It, it all could be good things, but it becomes the lust of the eyes when it becomes a strong desire. In your sleep, you dream. So that's meant by the lust of the eyes. The last one is the pride of life. The pride of life, the best way to call it as self-glorification. <coughs> now, when you're talking about self-glorification, it includes both ambition as well as contempt for others. Let me explain it that for you. <coughs> 
you know, the pride of life normally comes at the expense of someone else. The pride of life normally comes at the expense of someone else. Glorifying in something that is true of oneself in this life and world. It's not that you don't have and you're talking about it. You have that. But you're using it in a way which is which is not respectful to others. And that's the way the pride of life comes. I, I'll give the explanations, you'll understand. You know, in this world, God has blessed us with many things. But when we use it to show that we are somehow smart, we are superior, that's considered as the pride of life. It has got nothing to do with our soul and spirit. Nothing. <coughs> it includes uh, your pride of birth. You know, why do we have caste? Why do you tell your caste? Why do you think? That's, that's pride of birth. You know, your caste has no value if you don't have any other caste below your caste. Have you realized that? If your caste is the lowest, you will never talk about, this is my caste. So that's where John chapter 4, you know, when Jesus meets the woman, you know, at the well, the Samaritan woman, he is breaking all the barriers. As a child of God, the moment you have this pride of birth, your gospel has not touched you. It has not touched you at all. So the pride of life comes, you know, this is a reality. You are born in so-and-so place, you belong to so-and-so parents. But when you make it as, as your pride, pride of birth, you are looking down on somebody. You are looking down on somebody. You will never go to one who is on the topmost in the chart and you will say, my caste is this. You will never do it. Do you realize now what's meant by pride of life? As children of God, you have no caste. All are sinners washed with the blood of Jesus. There's nothing more than that. If you're sitting in this community and if you're thinking about, I'm, I belong to so-and-so caste, the gospel has not touched you. It's my prayer that the message of gospel will touch you today. It's, it's pride in your family. You know from which family I come from? Pride in your company. You know I'm working for so-and-so company. Pride in your career. <coughs> pride in your designation. This is all considered as the pride of life. It is there even in the ministry. So I'm not talking about only outside the world. I'm talking even within the church. You know, in the ministry, in Christendom, when people think I'm so-and-so. I'm pastor of a large church. You see, this is all pride of life. 
these are all reality. It has got nothing to do with your spiritual life. It has got nothing to do with your soul and spirit. When our identity comes from these factors, gospel has not made a little bit of dent in our life. Will you allow the message of Jesus to transform you today? Pride of life. You have you seen people who are very curious or very anxious? Somehow I want to meet that big person. I want to have that connection. Have you seen? I'm sure. You know, somehow, you know, they'll say, you know I know that person. This is all pride of life. Have you seen in the wedding invitation card? I'm, I'm, I was shocked. The, the, the names of people that are in the wedding invitation card. Wh what does it mean? We know so-and-so person. That person may not come for wedding also. But they'll put those names. Uh, what are we trying to say? Gospel has not touched us. Pride of life. On the other hand, people have the pride of life because of their wealth. You know, they, they pride on their wealth, on their material positions. Have you heard people saying, I went to so-and-so school? I went to so-and-so college? This is all pride of life. You know, you feel sorry for others. You couldn't come to my college, but you know I am from St. Stephen's. Have you heard that? You know I'm from IIT. What is that? That's pride of life. What are you saying? You know who I am. I went to so-and-so college, so-and-so university. I am working in so-and-so company. All this is this pride of life. You know what all I have done? I can release what all I have released in my life. How many books I have written. How many albums I have released. Have you heard? Pride of life. This is all pride of life. You know, we constantly, when we are boasting, remember, we are boasting at the expense of others. That's why it's dangerous. Man constantly boasts about his brain, you know, his knowledge, his understanding, all because he wants to get more and more worldly honors. I want more and more people to recognize how great I am, how great I am. That is that, according to the Apostle John, is meant by do not love the world or anything in the world. Let your identity not come from the world. You have been picked out. You have been lifted out from the miry clay, out of the mud and mire. That is your identity. I think I told you last Sunday that how do we handle criticism? You remember? If you don't remember, I can tell once again. You know, how do we handle criticism when somebody comes and criticizes you? You tell them, my, thank you so much. 
because what you have said is nothing if only you know my real self it's not enough if you say i have been lifted out of the mud and mire out of the slimy pit if that's why the more closer you get to jesus you understand how sinful you were when he touched you not now at that time and you sit and wonder lord of all the people in this earth me you have touched me you had confidence in me you have pursued me you had patience in me and you have loved me there's nothing to boast about there's nothing to boast about you cannot even say the kind of person you were you can come and say superficially this and that when you are at the foot of the cross and when you when god shines his light on you you know he is the only person who humbles you without humiliating you and you understand your worth and you say oh lord i have got nothing to say so there's no pride of life once you know that's why john says in 215 do not love the world or anything in the world if anyone loves the world love for the father is not in them if we are loving any of the things i have not gone exhaustively if we are loving any of the things the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life if you are loving any one of these things we are very sure we can say that the love of the father is not in us you know it, we cannot love and money not possible because the love for the world or the love for money pushes the love for god love for god pushes love for money from our lives it's not only john if you have seen james chapter 4 verse 4 james says you adulterous people don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against god therefore anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of god when we become very comfortable with this world we have become the friend of this world so john james paul all are saying the same thing if you want to love the reason being the world and its desires they pass away you know will you buy a stock in a company that is sure to go bankrupt will you invest in a company that you know in a year or two it will become bankrupt no reasonable person would lay up treasure where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal the world is passing away the world and its desires they ju- they are just passing away not only the world is passing away the desires are also passing away if we share the desires of the world that means we will also pass away we will not only lose our treasure we will lose even our life that's why it's important listen to this word carefully this is the word of god god speaking to us through his beloved disciple it's important if if we are concerned about life i think that's there in this particular letter 
Now, how do we do the will of God? Now, we have, we have seen what is meant by the world, what is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, how do we do the will of God? Now, who are Christians? Christians are those in whom the life of Christ, Christ dwells in them. They are Christians. If we are saved people, that means Christ dwells in us. Emmanuel, God with us. It's a Christmas time. We'll be singing about Emmanuel, God with us. Christians are those God, Christ dwelling within us. If we claim that Christ is dwelling within us, if we claim Christ is dwelling within us, if we all say Christ is in me, then we cannot be guilty of loving the things that arise from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We cannot be guilty of it. The world and its desires, they pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Now, loving the world and loving God is not optional. Either you can love the world or we can love God the Father. We cannot do both. And it is so important because it relates to our eternal life, eternity. See, we need to, it's not enough if you just say that, you know, after I die, I'll, you know, there'll be resurrection. It's not enough. It has to become a reality. We need to realize there is a life after death. Otherwise, we will not understand the significance of what Jesus did. When Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, we need to understand our life does not end here. If our life is going to end here itself, all that I'm doing is, it's a waste of time. Waste of time for all of us. So what is important is, the life that we live is a tiny part of our entire life. We will live for eternity. So it is very, very important we take care of our eternal life. So it's the word of God which gives us life. For the word of God is alive and active. So it's important. Please listen to this carefully. How do we do the will of God? Nothing in all the world is more important than experiencing love for God in our hearts. Nothing. My ministry, your profession, your money, your education, your designation, your achievements, your accomplishments, nothing. Nothing is more important than experiencing love for God, not love of God, love for God in our hearts. Love for God. We need to experience in our hearts. Because this is the first and the greatest commandment. Jesus said in Mark 12, 30, love the Lord your God 
with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. <coughs> now I said as Christians, who lives in us? Christ. Christ lives in us. Now look at our Lord Jesus. He was not guilty of the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes and pride of life. At least we all agree on that. Jesus Christ was not guilty of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and he dwells within us. Okay. He did not believe in outward show and appearance. Christ dwells in us, and he did not believe in outward show and appearance. He was meek and lowly. He lived with very poor parents. He worked with his hands as a carpenter. His identity was not in his profession. Do you, do you see this? His he was a very confident person. If there was somebody who was confident, all-knowing, sure, that was our Lord Jesus. But he worked with his hands as a carpenter, a manual laborer. And he is the Lord of glory, the savior of the world. He didn't derive his identity from his job and from what he's doing and how much money he was having. He knew God the Father and said, Lord, you be glorified in and through my life. That is the life which we claim is in us. That is the life. We say, Christ dwells in us. He is not guilty of the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And if we have to glorify Jesus in and through our lives, then we cannot afford to have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. You know, he was not seeking honor amongst men. He was seeking honor from the Father. It should be our endeavor, not we seek approval from people. You know, he's a great person. How does it matter? Tomorrow you'll say he's a useless person. You know, so seek honor from God. We would like to hear, all of us, I'm sure AGAG community, each one of us would like to hear when our life comes to an end, well done, good and faithful servant, come and share your master's happiness. Is that our desire this morning? Well done, good and faithful servant, come and share your master's happiness. Is that your desire? Is that your desire this morning? Ask yourself. You know, that's the reason Paul was able to write in Galatians chapter 6, 14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and to the world. You know, I was talking about the pride of life. Go and read the, you know, his biodata, Paul's biodata. He will he'll give a length. He will write so many things 
that he can be proud of. But he says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Place of birth, you know, pride in the family. Paul had all those credentials. But he says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and to the world. Now, we are coming to the end of the message, which is important as we have gone through this verse. What do we do with our desires? What do we do with our desires? We all have desires. None of us can say we don't have desires. So what do we do with our desires? We should reorient our desires towards God. We should reorient our desires towards God. You know, you eat so that you can glorify God. You thank God there's food on the table. You thank God because the farmer went to the field and he worked. He struggled. He produced that crop. And there was somebody to carry it. Come to your place. Come to the shop. Keep it there. And God gave you money. You could go and buy that. And God was taking care of you through all those people. You have food on the table because so many people have worked for you. God was taking care of you. When you say, thank you, Lord, for the food on my table, remember the people who all are involved in that. And you glorify God. When you eat that food, you glorify God. Somebody had to cook that food. We say, no, bless the hands that have prepared this food. Somebody has cooked that food and you glorify God. That's the way we reorient our desire. We desire a job not because that company is great, not because it's, it's number one in the stock market. We desire a job because in and through our job, we will discover God and love God. You know, if you have attended the uh, session on faith and work, you would have realized that, you know, we work, God, we work in a workplace, we glorify God. You want a job. Why do you want a job? Because you can buy a three-bedroom house? Because you can buy a car? No, you want a job where you can discover God and glorify God. Let me ask each one of you, wherever you are working, do you find God in your workplace? Or you are working because they pay you money? Ask yourself, do you find God? Can you glorify God in your workplace? It's all about how much more money can you save. That's the desire of the flesh. We desire for a spouse because we are hungry for God and hope to see God and love God in our partner. We desire a child not to show to the world, I have a child, or to fulfill our dreams in and through our children. We desire a child so that you can share God's love with your child.
do we have an eye for God in everything we desire? In Colossians 3.17 it says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And in 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Is it possible? It is possible. If you are a child of God, this is what is expected. I think nobody has said it better than St. Augustine. Uh, St. Augustine said, He loves you too little who loves anything together with you which he loves not for your sake. Uh, it's maybe an old English confessions. You read St. Augustine's, you'll understand. He loves you. His conversion itself was, you know, it's, it was an amazing conversion. He loves you too little who loves anything together with you which he loves not for your sake. We can love God because we love certain things. I want these, these things from God. So when we want, we love God because I can get these things, we are not loving God. We are making use of God. He is not God in our lives. If God stops giving these things, we will not even go to God. We have been told right from our childhood, come to God, ask him, he will give you everything. You know, we are not introducing our children to God, who God is and how much he loves us. We are not introduced. We have we have been introduced to our God. Ask, ask, ask. Our 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 communion, our relationship with God itself is a shopping list. Amen. Oh, this God never gives. You know that's not God. You are not loving God. You are loving God because you have to get these 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 things. God, if you heal me, you are a good God. If he doesn't heal. No, 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 no. It, this all, simply people talk about all this God love. It's, it makes no sense. That's what Augustine says. He loves you too little who loves anything together with you which he loves not for your sake. Now, if you find it difficult to understand this, the entire passage that we saw, you know, do not love the world or anything in the world you know, for the love of the you know, love of the world does not. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Okay, now. I will draw your attention to the last verse in this entire letter in 1st John. 1st John chapter 5, 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. He is not talking about Baal, Artemis, or some image, nothing. He is not talking about the way we understand idols. He is not talking about that. He is writing to Christians who believe in Jesus. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. 
what, what is John saying? John is saying, keep yourselves from idols. Don't seek your identity from the worldly things. Look at your master. He was born to a very poor parents. He worked as a carpenter. His identity did not come because he was educated in a very prestigious school or university. His identity is not because of that. What is idol? Idol is when you displace God. That's an idol. What God can give you if you try to get it through other means, that's an idol. Your prominence, your relevance, your importance, your approval, your security, what money does? We think we are very secure. What your job does? You think, oh my God, I'm working in so-and-so place, I'm earning so-and-so, I'm very safe, I have saved for my children, I have saved for my grandchildren. It's an idol, it's an idol. So he says, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the last verse in this letter. So you should draw our attention. What John is considered as the beloved disciple. And if John is saying something, it's for our good. Shall we come to a place where we say, I will love the Lord with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength. I will not allow the lust of the flesh, the lust of the spirit, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life to come between God and me. Anything, your job, your spouse, anything. Can you love God in everything that you have? I go to job because I can glorify God. I have a spouse so that I can share God's love with my spouse. I can see God in this relationship. I want a child so that I can share God's love with this child. Not because I want to make him a big engineer and doctor and all. That is, that's all, those are all secondary. The primary thing is I can share God's love with this child. That's why I want a child. Not because I want to show people that I also have a child. I'm also a normal human being. God always works through barren women. Read right from Genesis. Right from Sarah. You read. God is always countercultural. God works through poor people, uneducated, illiterate, people who are lowly. Let it doesn't mean we don't study. But in our mind, let not education become that idol. Let not our reputation and prominence become an idol. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Shall we bow our heads and examine and see whether we have an idol? I know we all sincerely desire to love our God, but is our lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes in between God and us. Pastor Prince.